Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? How's your Thursday going today? Yeah, mine too. It's been quiet. It's been quiet Thursday. My name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team located in sunny Sacramento, California. But I'm also the host of this show. I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. You name it. Um, we're 45 strong. The California Haunts team is 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you have any paranormal issues that you'd like attended to, we can get to you because, you know, there's, there's somebody in almost practically every county in the state. And we also have uh, branches out of Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So if you have issues there, let me know. And the way to let me know is to contact me via CaliforniaHaunts.org or, Cal- or the radio website at CaliforniaHaunts.radio.com or my Facebook page, which is my personal name. Or we have some California Haunts pages over on Facebook that you can just Google us over there. And you can contact me from there. Anyway, on that note, if you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button and if you like what you see. And the same thing goes for YouTube. If you're watching from YouTube, uh, there's that little man, I think it's the bottom right-hand corner, with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat on, and that's our mascot. Click on that. That'll subscribe you to all of our videos. And we have around 400 videos sitting over there that are for, of different topics. We don't always do paranormal. Look at what we're doing tonight, right? We're going to be talking about the Pyramid of Giza. So, you know, we'd like to kind of change it up. I'm a journalist. I like to do that. So uh, if you like what you hear and stuff, go ahead and please subscribe. And that will even notify you when we have a new video coming out. All right. Uh, my guest tonight, Scott Creighton, has, has written a few books on, on, the pyra- on the mysteries of the Pyramid of Giza. He's got some interesting theories. So we're going to bring him on and talk about those theories and see what you guys think, right? All right. So here we go. Hello, sir. Hello there, Charlotte. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Um, just about a week. <laughs> it's been a busy. It's been a busy week for you guys, huh? Oh yeah, you could say that. Yeah, um, but uh, um, I think it's um, it's 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 getting a bit out of hand. It's getting a bit over the top. I think um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways with um, you know. Um, the Queen's um, passing, the media has just gone crazy over here, so it's just um, just glad to be kind of having the TV off and sitting down and doing something completely different right now. Did you go out to see the Cortez? Did, did, did you go out to see the car go by or no? No, no, it was it was through in Edinburgh, which is in the, the east coast of okay. Scotland. I'm in, the, oh, I'm in Glasgow, in the west coast of Scotland, so yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, a lot of respect for um, the former Queen, but I'm not per se a royalist. Um, right. So, you know, um, fairly sort of Republican views, I would say. But um, you know, so. But yeah, a lot of admiration, a lot of respect um, for the the former Queen. Right. Well, over here, it's uh, we don't have full coverage on it, but. Uh... People do get Sky News and they get the BBC, so there's a lot of people staying up at night watching all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. To show you. I mean, she, was, 
she's a lovely person. I mean, yeah. you know, um, did a lot of good good work in her in her lifetime. But right. you know, the end of an era. Right. Well, Americans are funny. Here, here we left to get away from that, and then all, <laughs> the majority of Americans want to watch it twenty four seven on TV. You know, because they're they're impressed to yeah, have a story over here, even. You know. Yeah. It's yeah. Crazy. It's crazy. Mixed Tell up me, world. Yes. Tell me about you. Um, well, um, essentially, my career is in um, engineering, um, IT engineering. I've done for about um, 30 years or so. Um, and I have to say, I'm kind of, um, nah, it's just, you get to that point in your life where you just don't like doing IT anymore, you know. So, um, you know, so, um, you know, I started um um, writing um, some books a few years uh, oh gosh now well, I started researching probably about 20 years ago mm-hmm. um, so I think my first book was published about 12 maybe 14 years ago can't quite remember um, but you know that's that's really what I, I wanted to do I mean my very early career I actually started as a as a, a journalist believe it or not like, your, like yourself so um uh, but that was way, way, way back in the, the, the early 80s and back here in the UK, it was, it was not a good time to begin into, um, um, you know, journalism because the newspaper industry um, was going through major changes back in the early 80s with right. technology and so forth, and they were shedding staff left, right and centre, so it wasn't a good time to be um, going into uh, journalism. So, But I pursued it um, sort of um, independently through um, my, my writing um, books. I've always had a fascination for ancient Egypt ever since I was a small boy. Um, and well, I suppose like most people really, um, you, you're taught in junior school um, about these this amazing civilization, mm-hmm. uh, but it's only, it's only when you, you get older you, you you really start to look at it and go, you know, well, I was told this when I was young, but that doesn't really kind of add up. You know, it doesn't really kind of make any sense. Um, and then you you know you start wondering about life. You start wondering about our origins. Where did we come from? You know, mm-hmm. what is the roots of you know our current civilization, where did it all start? And inevitably that leads you to Egypt and to the study of ancient Egypt because that really is the most tangible thing that we have left um, that, t- that takes us back to where it all began. Um, for us as a, as a modern civilization, that's, that's our roots, that's our ancient heritage, if you like. So... To find out our true roots, you have to start there. So that's what I did. And um, as my research progressed over the years, my thinking completely changed on what the purpose for these amazing structures in Egypt, purpose completely changed. Um, and my views completely changed from what I was led to believe when I was, you know, in, in junior high school, you know, being taught about ancient Egypt then, you know, so my, my views now are radically different. 
So um, in doing your research, because uh, obviously, I, you know, I learned in school as well, you know, about this stuff. It still fascinates me. I'm on Discovery Channel all the time or on that geo watching this stuff, you know. So when you started to, to look into this, what struck you as, as the first major thing that didn't add up? Well, that's, that's, that's a good question. I think um, for me, we're taught in high school or junior school that these monuments were the tombs of individual pharaohs or ancient Egyptian kings. That's what we're taught, that they built these incredible monuments to store um, or house the body of an ancient Egyptian king. Now, think about this. These monuments, like the Great Pyramid, is 481 feet high, nearly 500 feet tall. It can be seen from about 30 miles away. Hmm. You know, so if you're a king and, you know, this is one of the things that, that I learned is that the ancient Egyptian king's body had to be preserved you know, that had to be protected because the king was actually more important in ancient Egypt in death than he was in life. Or rather, his soul was more important because it was the king's soul mm -hmm. that could, you know, ascend to the heavens and intercede with the gods there in the heavens, the stars in the heavens. And if the king's body was violated in any way or destroyed or disturbed or desecrated in any way, shape or form, then that could no longer happen. And that king would die what the ancient Egyptians called an eternal death. And he could no longer intercede with the gods, which could bring chaos to the kingdom. Okay. So... This king's body had to be preserved. Now, for me, the best way of doing that is to bury the body somewhere deep underground mm -hmm. with no marker as to where that body has actually been placed. In fact, Khufu, the, 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 the builder, or we're told the builder of the Great Pyramid at Giza, his own mother, he buried his own mother in an underground tomb, um, you know, a few hundred um, yards from or meters from um, the Great Pyramid, on the east side of the Great Pyramid. Mm -hmm. He knew himself that the most successful and secure burial was a burial deep underground with no marker. It was her tomb, um, Queen Hetefres, her tomb was only found by accident. Mm -hmm. um, I think by George Reisner's um, crew in Egypt in the 1920s. Uh, it was found purely accidentally. Um, the shaft that went down to this underground chamber was discovered accidentally. So that's, um, he knew, Khufu himself knew that the most secure burial was a burial where you couldn't actually see there was anything buried. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking myself, why on earth then would they build a cairn, a monument 500 feet tall that can be seen from 20, 30 miles away? Mm -hmm. There's, you know, there's a, there's a treasure, guys. Look, 30, you know, <laughs> why would you do that? Right. You know, right. So that to me was the first kind of inkling 
that things weren't quite um, what they seem uh, with 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 these monuments. So um, that's that essentially is kind of where kind of kickstarted my mind. Now I've got to, <laughs> I've got to find out a bit more about this. This this doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. So as you started to research in, what did you find out? As far as that goes, because I agree with you. I mean, um, it's like a big beacon. If you have something that's 400 feet tall like that, you know, hey, there's somebody here that's here for a reason. Let's start looking, you know, start poking around. So what? Yeah. So when you research, what what did you find out? Well, um, a beacon—that's exactly the term that I use in my books, Charlotte. That is exactly what it was. Or uh, we, we say in Scotland, um, a cairn. Um, or a, a beacon and I thought to myself well if it is a beacon of some kind why would they need a beacon of some kind and um, you know so that that kind of is the, the sort of channel that I went down to try and investigate this and one of the things I found um, was that the ancient Egyptians themselves see this this theory that I write about um, this is uh, this is the book here, um, The Great Pyramid Void Enigma. Um, that's not actually my theory, mm -hmm. per se. What I write about is actually what mainstream Egyptology, or in this particular book, what in mainstream Egyptology ignores. Okay. Because, you see, the ancient Egyptians themselves and um, some of their texts that have come down to us and we can still read them today tell us the purpose of the pyramids why they built them um but this is completely dismissed by mainstream egyptology as nothing more than myth and legend okay. that's what they believe these ancient texts that the ancient egyptians themselves passed down to us that describe the purpose of these pyramids. Mm -hmm. And one of the texts that have come down to us is from the Coptic Egyptians. Now, the Coptic Egyptians still exist in Egypt today. They're a minority group, about 5 or 10% of the Egyptian population. And they maintain that they are the, the, the custodians, if you like, um, the, the descendants of the original ancient Egyptians going all the way back to the pyramid builders and even further back into antiquity. They maintain that they are the, the guardians, the custodians of all of that ancient history. And one of the legends that they passed down, or their, their cultural heritage that they have passed down to us, is a legend known as the legend of Saurid. And this legend basically says that Saurid, um, this king, ancient Egyptian king known as Saurid, um, saw something in the heavens and the skies that was very unusual. And he asked his astronomer priests to to look into it and you know what what is going on here. The, the skies were, the stars were moving out of their normal course across mm -hmm. the heavens. The stars were changing their path across the heavens and this was really confusing and, and disturbing um, 
because these were the gods, the stars were the gods. What are they doing? You know, so the astronomer priests studied this and they noticed, yes, the stars were changing. And they came back and they told King Sauri, this means that in 300 years' time, there will be a great flood and it will drown the entire country. No one will escape from this deluge. That's what these astronomer priests told King Saurid. Yeah. Now, what his response, his response was, okay, um, what we are going to do uh, in defense of this or to mitigate the effects of this devastating flood is to build monumental man-made mountains and in these we are going to place everything that the kingdom will need to reconstitute or to be reborn again or reborn after this deluge like you see in the, the picture just there um you know so that is essentially what the sourid legend tells us now, Egyptologists dismiss this legend, they dismiss it for a number of reasons, reasons which um, I personally believe they, you know, are wrong, they shouldn't be dismissing it. Because one of the reasons is there was no King Saurid. That's one of the first reasons that they say why they dismiss this legend. There was no King Saurid in any of the ancient Egyptian king lists. And there's about four or five different ancient Egyptian king lists. Mm -hmm. And he isn't mentioned in any of them. So it's just a fantasy. However, um, a Hungarian scholar, um, a chap named Sandor Fodor, uh, or Alexander Fodor, he looked into this Saurid legend. He's an academic, and he looked into the Saurid legend in depth and what he discovered was that the name Saurid actually means Khufu. Wow. Now I'll spare you the detail of, 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 of how he came to that conclusion. Right. Um, it's, to do, it's to do with translation from one language to another language but essentially in the end he came to the conclusion no Saurid is actually Khufu. That's what it means. So there's the first thing being blown out of the water. Yeah, we are talking about a legend about a real ancient Egyptian king, not a mythical king at all. The second reason why they dismiss this legend is because of some of the, the content within the legend seems like truly bizarre. Mm -hmm. like it, it says that the stars and the heavens moved out of the place, out of their normal place. Well, that's impossible. Um, but, well, actually, it's not because it's not the stars that are moving out of the normal place. It's the earth beneath them that's turning over. But again, ancient, uh, sorry, mainstream Egyptologist says, well, that can't happen. There's no such thing as a, a rapid, you know, inversion of the earth. That simply can't happen. But, well, you know, that was the thought probably maybe about 15, 60 years ago that the earth cannot invert rapidly um, because of its equatorial bulge it's it's perfectly stable in its rotation but scientists recently have um, made 
other calculations, and they now know, we now know that the Earth can turn over without a devastating impact from a, another massive planet. That was the view in the past, that the Earth needed to be collide, needed to collide with another massive planet in order for it to, to turn over. Right. We know this, this is now not the case, because if that had happened, it would basically vaporise every organism on the planet. And since that hasn't happened, you know, we're still here, that hasn't happened. But scientists nowadays have realized that, well, actually, no, if that, you do this, if this happens or that happens, they've done various models and calculations, and we now know that it is possible for an inversion to happen. I don't know, um, Charlotte, if you've seen um, um, the the Janibekov effect. Have you heard of that, the Janibekov effect? I haven't heard about you that. Heard? What is that? Right, Okay. Um, you'll see it on um, YouTube. Um, now, Zhani Bekov, he was a Russian cosmonaut in Salyut 7 space um, station in like, the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. And while on board the space station, he was he was unscrewing a, win, a wing nut from its panel, and he just went like that to, to, to flip the handle. It started rotating, spun loose from its wall mounting. And this carried on through the space station like that, a straight line through the space station. Huh. And zero gravity, obviously. But as it was moving, it would flip 180 degrees and then carry on and then flip again and carry on automatically with no external um, interference at all. It would just flip itself 180 degrees. And kept doing this at regular intervals, right through the space station, the straight line. And the Russian government kept this this observation secret for about ten or fifteen years until they understood what the heck was going on here. And we now understand it as the intermediate axis theorem. We actually known about the the mathematics for a lot longer than the actual uh, observable physics of it. We understood. The mathematics of it before we could actually observe it because mm -hmm. it actually happens on earth as well but you can only observe it in space because things slowed down so anyway this um scientists say well that can't happen to the earth well i'm not so sure because i've seen models again you can watch them on youtube that show because they say that the Earth, because the Earth is a perfect sphere and you know um, it's 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 in its most stable axis. Well, mm -hmm. if, you, if if the Earth is a dynamic thing, it's not um, you know constant. It's constantly changing. It's dynamic. Sometimes, like um, ten thousand years ago, the Earth's oceans were um, four hundred or four hundred or so feet, you know, lower than they are today. A hundred thousand years ago, um, the oceans were about twenty-six feet higher than they are today. Right. So the Earth is a dynamic thing. So if if um, the oceans go much lower, like four hundred feet lower, mm -hmm. you know, it's going to change the you know the mass distribution of right. the planet and. You know, there may come a tipping point through that change 
I suspect there's a tipping point through that change. So anyway, that is one of the other reasons why Egyptologists dismissed the Saudi legend that he saw this happening. And they say, no, that's impossible. Well, actually, it's not. So, so there we have two things already. The Saudi is a real person, it's Khufu, and we now know that actually, you know, earth and, ver earth and versions, mathematically, we know they can happen. Mm -hmm. And there's actually evidence from ancient Egypt itself that it has happened. Um, but that, that that's that's perhaps um, a, a side issue. Uh, I go through all that in the book. There's a, a, a whole bunch of evidence that shows that this event really did happen, and that this this is why the ancient Egyptians were, um, you know, building these these monuments essentially as arcs. Mm -hmm. I call I call them recovery vaults, but right. essentially they were arcs. Right. And it's quite strange because the early Christian church, you know, around about 100, 200 AD, mm -hmm. um, one of the early fathers of the, the, the church was um, Origen. And in his homilies, he actually describes, he actually tells us that the ark was a pyramid. You know, he talks about the pyramids as arcs. The early fathers of the Christian church were talking about, um, you know, um, the pyramid as, as an arc. There's some Renaissance artists, um, Lorenzo Ghiberti. He has done these amazing Renaissance paintings um, in Florence, and uh, are the, on the doors of the Baptistry of Florence, and you see uh, this depiction of Noah and the flood. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the ark and the animals coming out of the ark, it's a pyramid. It's a huge pyramid. You know, so there's this ancient tradition that pyramids were actually arcs. I think it's maybe got a wee bit lost in translation. Right. I don't think stored animals in the pyramids. They probably stored seats and um, tools and, you know, um, things like that, that they would need to, um, you know, reboot the, the, their knowledge. They would, you know, um, papyri, books, whatever, inside these um, structures. They also built massive boats as well around the base of the pyramid. I mean, around the base of the Great Pyramid, there's something I, like... Um, seven, maybe nine, maybe even more than that, pits where there were these massive boats, you know, just ready for, for this, this this deluge. They would obviously be for, for the people, maybe some animals, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But they were basically preparing for this deluge. That's the reason the ancient Egyptians tell us they built these monuments. So, um, as my research continued and I'm looking more and more into this this legend of Saud. I took a sort of slight diversion because I, I, I was caught up with um, these painted markings that they found inside um, some chambers, hidden chambers inside the Great Pyramid by a chap called um, Richard William Howard Weiss. 
he was a British antiquarian pyramid explorer. Mm-hmm. He went to Giza in about um, 
but also to the King Ku, to King Khufu, that is the main piece of evidence that they have that he built the Great Pyramid. Now, these chambers were completely sealed. Howard Weiss had to use gunpowder to blast his way through the granite deep inside the Great Pyramid to get into these um, hidden chambers. So it's not like someone you know, in antiquity could have done it. No one in antiquity after the pyramid had been built could have done this. So, um, so <clears throat> that was a, a, a slight diversion. Mm -hmm. I had to analyze that because one of the things that this did, this discovery of Howard Weiss did is, to my mind, it sent Egyptology down the wrong path. It basically threw them I think what uh, you call in America a curveball. Yes. Yeah, through through mainstream Egyptology a curveball because as far as I'm concerned, these markings that Howard Weiss claimed to have discovered are fate. Not all of them, vast majority of them, and certainly all of the king's names that were found have been fate. I explain that in my other book, um, The Great Pyramid Hoax. And, the, and that's it, the, in the appendices of um, this book, there's more um, evidence that's come to, to, to light since the Great Pyramid hoax was built, uh, sorry, was published. So that new evidence is in that book. You know, so that discovery of Howard Weiser, claim discovery through Egyptology, a curveball, because that solidified in their minds why these structures were built mm -hmm. as the two for a single pharaoh. Mm -hmm. That's what they now firmly believed mm -hmm. because of his discovery. Which kind of troubled me because one of the things that the Saudi legend tells us, <clears throat> excuse me, just take some. Sure. One of the other things that the Saudi legend tells us that Khufu or Saudi placed inside these structures, particularly the Great Pyramid, in fact, only the Great Pyramid, were the bodies of his ancestors. So, Egyptology are telling us, <clears throat> because of this discovery of Howard Weiss, that the pyramid was built as a tomb for just one pharaoh. Right. Because the ancient Egyptians are saying, no. Khufu put all his ancestors in the Great Pyramid. So there's a contradiction there. Mm -hmm. So, so I looked into this further and I found some quite amazing um, things. The um, Khufu had, um, how many ancestors? He had 27 ancestor kings that could you know, all the way back to the first King Menes, there's 27 ancestors. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things inside the Great Pyramid that Egyptologists, mainstream Egyptologists, struggle really to explain, they've got ideas here, but their ideas really don't make a lot of sense, they really don't, is the Grand Gallery. Now, the Grand Gallery is about 150 feet long. It slopes at a 26-degree 26, 26 angle. 
on either side of the grand, now it's about 30 feet high. It's about 12 feet wide and 150 feet long. And it, it, it goes like that, um, you know, it's sort of corbelled um, walls that incline inwards like that. And on each side of these walls, along the side there, there's a sidewalk, or what we call in the UK a pavement. There's a sidewalk on either side. And into each of these sidewalks, there are these notches. Each notch is about, well, some are two and a half feet wide, mm -hmm. others are two feet wide, and they alternate, two and a half, two, two and a half, two. And they're about eight, eight inches deep. <clears throat> Egyptologists don't really know what these are for. But one of the other legends that have come from the ancient Egyptians tells us that when Al-Mamun, uh, he first breached the Great Pyramid in 820 AD, when he first went in there, it said that he found statues and they believed they were the statues of Surid's ancestors. And the thing is, if you count the number of notices, there's 27 on either side. Mm -hmm. Khufu had 27 ancestors, 27 statues of each of the ancestors. King and queen facing each other all the way up this grand gallery. So that's, but why, why would they need all of these statues because remember, the book is called The Big Void. Right. Now, The Big Void, uh, and, and Big Void Enigma, The Big Void was discovered in 2017 by a team of about, a group of about 30 scientists split into three teams using different, um, what's called um, myography. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a form of x-ray, except where x-rays can look into human flesh, neography can look into the hardest of rocks, can see deep into the hardest of rocks. Mm -hmm. And they discovered this massive space, massive space that they did not know was there. And it's situated about 10 or 15 feet above the Grand Gallery. Now, when I first heard this, I, I was like, it was like a flashbulb went off my head. That's it. That's the missing piece. Because I was like, well, why? But the statues, and I was, the, the bodies would need to be there. Now, let me explain that. To the ancient Egyptians, when the king died, if his, I, I touched on this earlier, when the king dies, and his, they preserved the body from decay. That was the whole purpose of embalming. They had to preserve the body, the king's body, from decay. Mm -hmm. Because if the king's body decayed so much and you know, was basically unrecognizable, his soul would not be able to recognize the king's body. And if the soul could not enter the king's body because it couldn't find the body, it decayed too badly, the king would die an eternal death. Mm -hmm. But the ancient Egyptians were clever. What they did 
was they built or they created a substitute likeness for the king, the statue. Okay. That's, right. why, that's why in the Grand Gallery, that's where they placed the statue. And you see this in, in Egyptian tombs, even into the, the late period, you know, they, they found kings. They've actually found a lot of ancient, ancient Egyptian kings. The strange thing is they haven't found any from Khufu, before Khufu. They haven't found any kings from that period. They found kings from later periods, mm -hmm. just not the old kingdom. Because, and this is what this legend survey tells us, Khufu took all his ancestors and placed them inside the Great Pyramid. And that's why each of them has a statue. It's called a Ka statue because if the king's body in that pyramid up in that big void mm -hmm. decayed so badly, its soul would have a surrogate, a statue sure. down below. And the statue was always placed below or was always placed lower than the actual body. And these later tombs we find as a statue and these tombs for the king as well, a Ka statue. And it's always placed lower than the body, just sort of see in the Great Pyramid. The Grand Gallery is below. That's the Grand Gallery. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the you know big void is above it. So that's essentially um why the big void I'm seeing that when they finally manage to find a means a way of exploring it. Um, probably with um, endoscopic camera, a drill, mm -hmm. drilling hole and put, putting an endoscopic camera. That's what they'll find. They'll find 27 kings and 27 queens, ancient kings and queens. Now, one of the, you know, other things that um, point to that is the fact that they're in the old kingdom, pre-Khufu, not after Khufu, this was only discovered, I'm about to tell, it was only discovered pre-Khufu, mm -hmm. Khufu's time and before. There was a number of tombs or kings, sarcophagi, that we have discovered in modern times, preserved completely entire, the tombs been undisturbed. And we are the first people to go into the tomb since right. the person was first interred. Right. When they opened the sarcophagus, they prized the lid off the sealed sarcophagus that had never been opened. It was empty. And they found about three, four, five maybe of these mm -hmm. sarcophagi that undisturbed. And when they opened, it was empty. I mean, even uh, Khufu's mother, who was you know, buried at Giza when they opened George Reisner in the eighteen twenty uh, sorry nineteen twenties opened her um, sarcophagi. It was empty, and they know it was used because there there were stains in the bottom of the sarcophagi. But for some reason, they took her body out and put it somewhere else. Um, so this is what I'm saying is that, yeah, they did, that's exactly what they did. They took it just as they said they were doing in the Saurid legend. They took it and placed it inside the big void. That's its purpose because if these um, 
Mustaba, the, the kings up until then were built in these low um, mud brick Mustabas. They were expecting a deluge. Right. That would scrub the land right. completely clean. Right. It would destroy all these kings and their and queens. How is the rebirth going to happen? Because they were the key to it happening. They were the ones, the gods, the god kings in death who could intercede with the gods in heaven to bring about the rebirth. It couldn't happen if their bodies were destroyed. And so they had to make sure that they were well above where they anticipated the, the floodwaters would be, mm -hmm. safe haven. And this is the other thing about the big void. There's no passages to it. They didn't discover any passages. They can see the passages to the king's chamber, the grand gallery, the queen's chamber, the subterranean chamber. They can see all these passages, but not... For the big void, it doesn't have any. And that would be exactly right. Because when the pyramid is built layer by layer by layer all the way up, when the roof of the big void is open, that's when the Lord, you know, the, the, the body's in to safeguard them for all eternity from this um, devastating flood. And because there's no passages it's impossible to find. It really is impossible to find. And in fact, the the, the chambers like the, the king's chamber, the queen's chamber, they're possibly um, decoys. Mm -hmm. Possibly decoys. Now, you asked earlier, um, Charlotte, at the top of the show, one of the main pieces of evidence that got me thinking about there's something not right here. Mm -hmm. Another one is when the... When um, uh, Giovanni Belzoni, he was an Italian Egyptologist in the 1800s, he was the first person to enter the middle pyramid at Giza. It looks like the tallest pyramid, it looks like the Great Pyramid, but the middle pyramid isn't the Great Pyramid, even though it looks taller. Mm -hmm. That's it's what's called G2, or the Pyramid of Khafra. Khufu is to the right of that. Anyway... Khufu is actually taller, but it's on lower ground. Anyway, when Giovanni Belzoni entered mm -hmm. G2, Khafre's Pyramid, he found what they call the King's Chamber, and the sarcophagus was still there, still sealed. Wow. He gets the lid off. Mm -hmm. What do you think he found? Nothing, right? No, he found something. He what he found, what he found, was plain old Egyptian earth. Okay. In this box, a box full of earth, because that's exactly what they were doing. They weren't. It wasn't about the rebirth of a king. Right. It was about the rebirth of the earth. Interesting. You know, you know, it was a Teutonic ritual about the rebirth of the earth. And after that, in, in later dynasties, what you find is the ancient Egyptians made these small, um, small miniature sarcophagi right. made of wood or, or even, even stone um, or clay, you know. And what they 
would do with these, they were only about 18 inches long, and they would fill these with earth. And into the earth it would impress the figure of the god Osiris, who was a god of rebirth mm-hmm. and regeneration. And they would place a lid on it and put it in a hole in the ground, bury it and place a rock on top, symbolising the pyramid. Now what that tells me is that they knew, remember these are later, later dynasties, later Egyptian people from the time of the pyramid builders, they knew what was in right. the box in those pyramids. It was earth because they were doing it themselves. They knew the tradition. They understood what it was all about. So that, for me, was another reason that told me, no, these were not about the burial of kings. In the traditional sense, there was one, yes, the Great Pyramid was about the burial of kings, but not just for one king. They put the whole lot in that one pyramid. All the other pyramids, no, they were purely about, um, you know, storing, acting as cairns um, for the storage within the pyramid, below the pyramid, around the pyramid, mm-hmm. of everything that the the country would need to be reborn, um, and acting as a cairn. <clears throat> Sure. So that people could see it from 30, 40 miles away or wherever. You know, that's exactly what you would need in, you know, a natural disaster. You want to find, right, where's the recovery items? Where, where are they? You can see them from miles away. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the point. It's not a good idea for the burial of a king. It's certainly a good idea for, you know, um, finding important um, items, tools, seeds, Mm-hmm. knowledge, you know, to, to reboot um, the, the, the kingdom. So that essentially um, is, in a nutshell, and as I said, it's, it's not really my hypothesis. Sure. It's what the Egyptians themselves tell us, which I suppose I'm essentially trying to rehabilitate, you know, this, this legend to, right. to get it out there back into mainstream thought again. Because I genuinely believe for a lot of reasons, which I explain in the book, that there's more substance and truth to that legend than Egyptologists will admit um, because <clears throat> they have got their their ideas and, and they're not letting go of them. <laughs> well, you know, it makes sense because I know I've seen stuff on uh, Nat Geo and Discovery about these different mountains where, where they have found seashells up high on the mountains, and they found the you know the, they found the the skeletons of fish up there. Yeah. So they had somewhere along the line, like you say, there had to be some kind of great great flood of water. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> the thing is, um, whether the deluge happened or not is actually it's kind of immaterial because the thing that matters is that they believed it was going to happen. Right. That was the, the impetus, the motivation for the construction of these monuments. Right. They believed right. it was going to happen. Whether it did or not, you know, the, the, there's some indications that the site at Giza was inundated by a great deluge of water. Mm-hmm. There's, there's stories that tell us that, <clears throat> excuse me, the stories that tell us that the monuments had um, tide marks like halfway up 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, watermark halfway up when the the casing stones were still on the the pyramid, they could see these tide marks on the the, the gleaming white casing stones where there had been an inundation. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a chap called um, Sharif Al Morsi. Uh, he he lives um, in Egypt and uh, near Giza, and right. he's done incredible research about um, an inundation. Um, happening on the Giza Plateau. And he's found a ton of evidence to show that actually it was seriously inundated by a deluge in at some time in antiquity. One of the things he, uh, uh, he's shown is the exoskeleton or shell of a sea urchin and it was embedded on top of a wall. This ancient Egyptian wall, um, the, the mortuary temple of the third pyramid at Giza, the smallest of the three, at the temple beside that, on, on this wall, the wall's probably about, I don't know, about seven, maybe ten feet high, and there's this sea urchin, exoskeleton of this sea urchin, this ancient embedded. Yeah. Now, people say, oh, well, I mean, it's limestone, limestone's made with shells. No, limestone's made with tiny, tiny, tiny Fragments of shell, not you know, a, a massive um, exoskeleton of a, a, a complete sea urchin. So he found that, and you know, embedded into um, this this the top the top layer of this wall, and you know, it could only have been there when if that area had been like a a, a shallow lagoon yes. at some point in its its history, as the waters were gradually receding. But you know, in the in in um, the latest book, the Great Pyramid Void Enigma, I, I go into the deluge and the flood in great depth, and the symbology of every, everywhere Giza and the pyramids themselves and their legends, uh, you know, and and their images, their you know their artwork, they they talk. <laughs> It's about the flood. It's about this coming deluge. Right. Very name, Charlotte. The very name of the Great Pyramid. It's called Akit Khufu. Akit Khufu. That's its name. That's the name that Egyptology gives to the Great Pyramid, and it kind of sort of Giza Plateau, probably in ancient times, was Akit Khufu. Now the word Akit means flood. That's what it means. The word Khufu means protector. That's what those two words mean. Protector of from the flood, flood protector. You know, it's right there. You know, there's your mic, boom, boom right. that's it. Yeah. That's Khufu, flood protector. When you look at the symbol for the pyramid, the hieroglyphic for the pyramid, it's a triangle, as you would expect. Right. But below it is this narrow rectangle underneath it. Now, Egyptologists tell us that the narrow rectangle below the pyramid is just the the, the perimeter wall around the base of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. The pyramids have these uh, walls around the base. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely not that at all. Because if you look at the hieroglyphics, yeah, the pyramid's a pyramid, but if you look at the hieroglyphic for a rectangle, 
It's a body of water. That's what it is. It's a pyramid rising out of a body of water. How do I know this to be fact? Because if you look at the, the South Pyramid at Saqqara, it's pretty much a rubble pile now. But if you look, its basement wall, a perimeter wall, is still there. And the interesting, about, the interesting thing about the pyramid wall of the South Pyramid at Saqqara, it's, it's, it's like a wave. It's wavy. Yeah. Which is a symbol for water, the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic symbol for right. water. You know, so rather than just having its perimeter wall just a straight rectangle, they actually made it a wavy wall, you know, so that there could be no misunderstanding. It's the pyramid rising out of water. That's what, you know, and you see this everywhere, the pyramid rising out of water. You know, so this is what I'm the, the myth of Isis and Osiris. That is a metaphor. I explain this in the book. I go into it in some depth in the book. It's a metaphor for this deluge, this coming deluge. The myth of Isis and Osiris, it, it tells us that Seth, who was the brother of Osiris, he was jealous of Osiris, who was the king. Seth wanted to be king. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so what he did was he tricked Osiris into lying in the sarcophagus, mm -hmm. and which he then, Seth, having done this, quickly closed it, sealed it, and threw it into the Nile where Osiris drowned. Isis managed to find the body and resurrect her husband. <clears throat> Finding this out, Seth then took Osiris again, and this time he cut his body into 16 pieces. Hmm. Some parts of legend say 14. Cut his body into 16 pieces and scattered it across the land of Egypt, or these 16 pieces across the land of Egypt. Now here's the thing. If you look at the distribution pattern of the first 16 pyramids, that's big pyramids, small pyramids. If you look at the distribution pattern of those 16 pyramids, you see this in one of, <coughs> one of my earlier books. They form the, you know, they basically create a stickman outlook of the iconic Osiris image. You've probably seen it with the, the three-pronged Atif crown yeah. and the, the crook and flail yes. you know, on his hands. It, it creates that image on the ground with these 16 pyramids. So this is what I'm saying. Osiris, you know, the pyramid texts, they tell us Osiris is the pyramid. The construction of the pyramids is Osiris. That's what the pyramid texts explicitly say. Mm -hmm. So really, Osiris is the pyramids, these first 16 pyramids. That's who Osiris is and was. And his body being thrown into the Nile and drowned, that's a metaphor for these pyramids being covered in water mm -hmm. by the deluge. Osiris, the 16 pyramids, the body of Osiris, covered in water, being drowned, and then eventually rising out of the water as the the 
sea levels subside. So this this is what it's all about, you know. But I say it's, it's, it's done in allegorical terms, the myth of Isis and Osiris. But when you see, uh, you know, the, the 16 pyramids, these 16 pieces are actually pyramids. It's not body parts. The body is the, the pyramids. That's what the, the pyramid texts tell us. One of the titles of Isis, the wife of Osiris, is... Isis was known as the mistress of the pyramids. Now, why would she be known as the mistress of the pyramids? Well, because her husband was the pyramids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the 16 pyramids were Osiris. So she was the mistress of the pyramids, which were Osiris. She's mistress of Osiris. So, you know, so it, it all ties together, you know, um, and, you know, it's... I just encourage people really to um, look a bit more deeper into um, these these ancient legends, and you know, basically keep an open mind to what they're really telling us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a lot more truth in those legends than than you know mainstream Egyptology would 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 have us believe. You know what? I've learned so much tonight. I mean, this is incredible. It just told it just you know totally blew my mind tonight. That is really cool. That is oh, well, and it makes perfect sense. Well, I think it makes sense. It makes but sense. you know the, the ultimate proof obviously will be when if when we get into the big void, because <clears throat> I don't know if that'll happen in my lifetime, I doubt it. Um, but you know, the ultimate proof um of this hypothesis of this legend will be when, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> voice is going a wee bit um, this morning. Yeah, so the ultimate proof will be when um, they manage to get in there somehow and see what's in there. And I'm pretty certain that it's what the ancient Egyptians tell us is in there. That is, that is really cool. I want to thank you for coming on. This was great. I'm pleased to be here. Pleased to be here. I'm, 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 I'm glad to, to do these, these these interviews and always nice to, to meet you know new people that are interested in in hearing about about these about our you know ancient history and our origins. You know, that's what what it's really all about. I am so fascinated by this stuff, and 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 from what you're saying, I want to look into it more now. Now, now you got me cu- really, really curious to want to start plugging away at it because, yeah, what you're saying makes perfect sense, you yeah. know, about them because there's really no function for them, except that you know, like you say, the the, the steps on there make sure you know to be a level up there for the, when the water came up. That makes yeah. perfect sense. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, they had to preserve the bodies. They had to preserve the bodies of the kings right. because. And it was just in the one pyramid, as I said. That's why the Grand Gallery, Egyptologists can't explain the Grand Gallery. They just don't know why it's there. I mean, and now they've got another Grand Gallery, if you like, you know, and so they're going, oh, what's going on? Because most pyramids only have one chamber. The Great Pyramid now has five. They're like, what's going on? Because that's the one that they used. That was the engine room, what I call the engine room of the whole rebirth machine that you know for the kingdom the great pyramid was the engine room that's where all these kings their rebirth 
-hmm. to ensure that their bodies were not destroyed in this deluge. They were preserved um, because only they, the Osiris kings, could ascend to the heavens and intercede with the gods on behalf of the kingdom to make sure it could be reborn. They had to be preserved. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then having the storage pyramid for the rest of the stuff. So that yep. we restart fresh. That makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah, because around, if you look at G2, the middle pyramid at Giza, mm -hmm. they, found, they found these galleries, what they call the galleries. And again, Egyptologists don't know what, what they're for. These, there's a hundred of them to the west side of the, the middle pyramid at Giza. And each of them are about 10, 12 feet deep, 100 feet long, and about 10, 12 feet wide. Mm -hmm. There's a hundred of these, and they don't know what they were for. Um, Mark Lehner, the American Egyptologist, suggested that they were for storing things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but exactly for that. Is, yeah. You know, but beside the cairn, you know, the big beacon, you know, <laughs> they're going to get found. It's going to get found. Absolutely. Again, I want to thank you for coming on. How can people yeah. find you, sir? Um, well, um, I, I'm the, I, I host the um, Alternative Egyptology Forum on ATS, um, AboveTopSecret.com. I host the, so you can interact with me there. Um, you know, if you've got something you want to see, just pop on there and you'll find me. All right, sounds good. Thank you so much. And like I said, I appreciate you coming on. I wanted, I've been dying to talk to you, literally dying to talk to you because, because of this. I'm so fascinated by ancient, you know, by ancient Egypt and, and the history over there. I'm just, yeah, this just totally blew me away. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte. Nice to see you. Take Maybe care. Some other time we can get you on again to talk more about this stuff. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, you have a Take good rest. You enjoy the rest of your day, okay? I'll do my best. <laughs> right. Have a good one, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, I learned a lot, and I remember hearing him the first time I heard him on the radio. He blew my mind, and he blew my mind again today. You know, who who, who would have thought of this theory? And, and I, I think it's a, it's a very plausible theory because there were a lot, you know, not only did the whole legend with the Noah flood come in, but I mean, there there was a cataclysmic flood. Like I said, there's some mountains out in the Middle East and stuff where they have gone up there and they have found different things from, from fish and, and you know and you know carcasses from fit, well you know skeletons of fish and stuff like that on them. And there's no reason for them to be there. They're just there. So I mean, the whole thing is is plausible. Anyway, tomorrow Nancy will be with us. It's Casual Friday. And uh, she will be with us again. Don't know what we're going to be talking about yet. It's going to be a surprise topic. Don't we love those days? But she's going to be with us again. And so she'll be here. If you're watching from Facebook and you enjoyed the show, please be sure to follow. Uh, you know, we're looking for people to follow us. If you're, watch if, if you're interested in, in following me on Instagram, that is under ghostygal. And that's over at Instagram.com. Ghostygal. And if you're again, if you're watching from YouTube, uh, please click on the little ghost in the bottom right hand corner with the magnifying glass on and the Sherlock Holmes hat because that will subscribe you to our future videos. All right. So I'm going to show you uh, Scott's information and, uh, you know, his website and also where, where to get his books that, that I, I, you know, I put that together for you. And uh, OK, let me do that real quick. Here we go.
Okay, so the website is intertraditions.com. That's intertraditions.com. And the Giza Prophecy is one of the books. The Great Pyramid Hoax. The Great Pyramid Void Enigma. The Secret Chamber of Osiris. And those are available at Amazon.com. All right. Once again, I want to thank everybody for coming, and I really appreciate each and every one of you. I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Uh, with Nancy Pacific. 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Bye.